Good morning. It's good to see all of you. Um, over the last few weeks, what we've been trying to do is to give you a high-level overview of the Bible. Like, how does it function? What does it mean? And the reason why we're doing this is because the Bible, while its basic message can be understood by even the simplest of people, it's also so complex that a person could spend their entire lives trying to plumb its depths and never reach the bottom. So in that case, it can be a very confusing book. And if you don't know where you are, you don't know what it's ex what's expected of you, you could wind up reading it and not understanding it. And so that's why we're going through this series, is to try to help give you an interpretive key that's going to help you unlock the contents of the Bible, no matter where you find yourself. Now, Matt brought us through the Pentateuch, which is to say the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses, uh, a few weeks ago. And over the last two weeks, we've looked at the historical books and then the prophets, Today, we get to the wisdom literature. Now, let me just stop for a second and say, um, what I'm about to say presupposes you've looked at a Bible before and, and seen what's in it, maybe read through it before. So if you haven't, it might be a good idea to look at the table of contents in a Bible or open an app or whatever the kids are doing these days and, um, and follow along with me, um, just so that you have some reference of what I'm gonna be saying. So I spent a lot of time last week helping you see the structure of the Old Testament as Jesus understood it. When Jesus thought about the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, which was all that was written when he was around, he thought about it as uh, broken up into three sections. You remember we talked about Luke chapter 24, verse 44, where Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, is speaking to his disciples, and he says, listen, everything that was written about me in the law and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Okay, so when Jesus thought about his Old Testament, his Hebrew scriptures, what he thought was that it was broken up into three sections, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, or the wisdom literature. And he simultaneously, in that statement, gave us the interpretive key to understand all of it. He said, everything that is written in those three sections of the Old Testament, which is to say all of it, it's about me. They must be fulfilled in me. So, in saying that, he's giving us two vital pieces of information. Number one, Jesus is the interpretive key to everything that, that everything that happens in the Old Testament. No matter what page you find yourself on in the Old Testament, you can get your bearings this way, that somehow, in some way, Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, is the meaning, the ultimate meaning of this passage. The second piece of information it gives us is that he shows us exactly how that message unfolds. As I said, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, or the wisdom literature. And just as a parenthetical remark, when he says the Psalms, he means the entirety of the wisdom literature because it was an ancient um, custom to refer to a whole body of literature by the first book in that literature. And the Psalms happened to be the first uh, in the Hebrew ordering of all the wisdom literature. So, in parentheses. Okay. Now, um, the third thing, and the final part of our review from last week, is that we saw that the way the Hebrews ordered their Bible was done with a different criterion than we order our Bibles, or our Old Testament, I should say. Um, 
historic, we, we order our books according to genre, right? Historical books go in the historical section. Wisdom books go in the wisdom section. Um, historical narratives go in the, I already said that, historical narrative section. Uh, the prophets go in the prophets section. You know, so we order ours by genre. Not so with the Hebrew Bible. They ordered their Bible, by the way, same books, we're not missing anything, just a rearrangement of them. They ordered their scriptures by a different criterion, namely covenant. So the unfolding of the covenant happens in stages, in the law, and then in the prophets, and then in the wisdom literature. Okay, so all of that just by way of review of what we said last week. So, um, the Pentateuch, let's just drill down on this a little bit more. The Pentateuch, first five books, if, if these are ordered by covenant, then the Pentateuch actually gives us the content of the covenant, right? It gives us the law of Moses and how are the people to live in light of the holiness of God and the reality of sin. And then the prophets actually give us the covenant history. They show us what does it look like for a group of people, which is to say, in that case, the people of Israel, God's chosen people, what does it look like for them to try to live out the covenant in the land that God has promised them and then beyond into the diaspora and the exile? Now we get to the wisdom literature, which tells us how the covenant is to be lived out by any of God's people in any time and in any place. That's what the wisdom literature is for. So here's one way to summarize this. If you, and listen, if, you're, if you understand what I'm about to say, if you take it in and ingest it, then I think whole sections of the Bible will become immediately clear to you and you'll understand how to interpret them. So here it is. The first two sections, stay with me. The first two sections of the Old Testament scriptures, Pentateuch, Prophets, are for us, but not about us. You follow? They, they are for us, but they are not about us. That's what the author of Hebrews says about the wilderness generation, that these things were written down for our instruction, the, the instruction of Christians. Yes, those sections are for us, but they are not about us. They are about God's covenant people, namely Israel. So that means, here's the key, that means you can't just pluck a passage out of that particular section of the scripture, either the first five books or the prophets, you can't just pluck a passage out of that and assume it's going to have immediate application in the life of a Christian. Why? Because it's not for us, excuse me, it's for us, but not about us. So, you know, the classic example is David and Goliath, and that story gets all sorts of um, shade uh, in our circles today, which is rightly so, um, because, you know, the, the typical um, interpretation of David and Goliath is, you know, you, you see David, and he's small, and he hits the thing, and the giant, and he falls, and he's like, oh, it's great, and then the application becomes, hey, you know what, go out and face your giants and slay them, trusting the Lord, etc. But you can't do that. You can't. Why? Because that is in the section of the prophets, which is for us, but not about us. If it were about us, then we could just say, yeah, that's what it means. Go slay your giants. But it's not. It's not about us. Therefore, um, we need to think about it a different way. And when 
the different way that we need to think about it is that is to go to Jesus and say, oh, when he was talking with his disciples in Luke 24, he said, everything that was written in the law, and here we are in the prophets, was written about me. So the story of David and Goliath is a story about how God chose one man to save his people from destruction. And you, you start to see how it unfolds when we see it through that interpretive lens. Now, that's just by way of example. Now we get to the wisdom literature. And this set of writings is both for us and about us. The wisdom literature is for us and about us. Everything you find in this section of the scripture is applicable to all of God's people in all places and at all times. I mean, everyone can immediately take a psalm into their mouth and learn the art of prayer. We can pray these things directly to God. We can go to the Proverbs and see how does God's wisdom work out in everyday life. We can see how that works, and it is immediately applicable. Okay, now, in order to further understand the wisdom literature, it's going to be important for us to understand where our Western rearrangement of the books really obscures the meaning of the wisdom literature. For example, if I asked you where the book of Ruth belongs in the Old Testament, you'd probably tell me that it belongs in the historical narrative section. And I wouldn't blame you. Like, if you're looking at your table of contents, that, that's where it is. It's in the historical narrative section. Oh, and by the way, it's also telling us a story about something that happened in the life of Israel. So, of course, we would think historical narrative, but that is not where it goes. That's, that's where it is in our English Bible, but in the original order, Ruth belongs in the wisdom literature. It comes right after the Proverbs. More on that later. Um, and another example... If I asked you, where does Chronicles belong? This is not one we spend a lot of time in, in general, but you, maybe you've read it before. Where does Chronicles belong? Belongs in the historical narrative section, right? You would think so. After all, all it's doing is recapitulating all the, everything we saw in the book of Kings, right? It's, it's telling us about the kings. It's telling us about their spiral into idolatry and the leading of the people astray. That's what the book of Chronicles is about. And yet, that's not where the Hebrews put their book of Chronicles, they put it in the wisdom literature. Again, more on that later. So, something very significant is going on. Now, at this point, you may be lost in the weeds. You might be asking, I mean, yeah, that's all very interesting, but so what? Who cares? Um, but if you stick with me, if you're anything like me, <laughs> this is going to this is going to blow your mind. I mean, when I first learned this, it blew my mind, and it completely re-enchanted the writings of the Old Testament for me. So, let's keep going. In order to understand what's going on in the wisdom literature, it's going to be important for us to know how it is structured. Okay, we're going to come back to structure again. In general, listen to this, in general, the wisdom literature is structured like this. Exposition illustration. First comes the exposition, then comes 
the illustration. For example, Psalms, as I mentioned before, is the first book of the wisdom literature. And if you've ever read the Psalms before, you'll know that among these 150 prayers, there are lots of different kinds of psalms. There's psalms of praise, there's psalms of lament, there are kingly psalms, there are psalms of confession, and on and on and on. Now just think about this for a minute. I'm sure many of you have read the psalms before. So in your memory, which kind of psalm is the most numerous? Think about it. Which one is the most numerous? Out of all the categories of the psalms, I'm guessing you're going to tell me that the psalms of praise are the most abundant. But it's not. It's not. In fact, holding pride of place as the category that claims the most psalms is lament. There are more psalms of lament than any other kind of psalm. And then in the Hebrew order of the Bible, in the wisdom literature to be specific, do you know what comes after the book of Psalms? Job. Exposition, illustration. In the Psalms, we learn the general truth that life is filled with lamentation. And then here comes Job to become the illustration of that truth. Are you following? Okay. Next up, you have the Proverbs. So we go Psalms, Job, Proverbs. And Proverbs is just an exposition of all godly wisdom under the covenant of God. But how does the Proverbs end? You know this, Proverbs 31. In Proverbs 31, we have the woman of great valor, or as we more weakly translate it, a wife of good character. It's, nobody wants, I mean, I guess somebody might want to be that, but a woman of valor, a woman of strength, that's better. All right, so, um, so the fact that that comes at the end, what we can discern about the nature, about the apex of, um, wis of uh, Jewish wisdom is this. Like, summarize everything. Get to the height of Jewish wisdom, and what you have is this. Get a good wife. Now, time for another parenthetical remark. Um, <laughs> you probably know that it was, in the ancient culture, it was boys and men who studied these things. Um, and so that would be a fitting admonition. Um, if girls and women studied it formally like they do today, I, I think it would be the same admonition and it would apply in reverse. So um, that's a parenthesis ended. So, but the, you, do you understand that? You, you get it? Okay. Um, so, the sum of Hebrew wisdom in the book of Proverbs, get a good wife, a woman of strength, a woman of valor. And in Hebrew, the name for this woman in Proverbs 31 is Isha Chayil. Nobody's gasping. Isha Chayil. Now, maybe a young Jewish boy reading the Proverbs in those times, might wonder, how am I to find this Isha Chayil? What does she look like? How do I know her when I see her? Well, good news. Right after Proverbs, right after the exposition, we have the illustration of this woman in the next book, which is Ruth. 
And by the way, the only, okay, the only other woman who, who is called in all of the scriptures, the Isha Chayil, guess who it is? It's Ruth. Do you see how this is fitting together? So if you want to know what a woman of force looks like, here she is. Now, I'm going to skip ahead. I'm just going to give you one more example of how this works. Um, do you know off the top of your head where the book of Lamentations goes in your Old Testament? It's right after Jeremiah, in case you didn't know. So it's in the prophets section. And that makes sense because Jeremiah is the author of Lamentations. And it's, you know, he's lamenting the fact that God has exiled his people from their land. But you could probably already guess. Uh, Lamentations in the Hebrew order is actually in the wisdom literature. It gives the exposition of lament over the failure of God's people to keep the covenant in the land. And Jeremiah is wailing. Tears are pouring forth from his eyes as he sees his brothers and sisters carted off into exile to live under foreign domination. And the next two books we get after Lamentations are Esther and Daniel. So we have the exposition of the exile, and then we have Esther. What does it look like to live as a faithful woman in exile? There she is. What does it look like to live as a faithful man in exile? Well, there's Daniel. We have the exposition, then we have the illustration. And I hope that you're seeing how all this fits together. I mean, when, when it all starts lining up, it boggles the mind. And more to the point, it helps you see how to interpret those things. If Ruth belongs in the historical narrative section, then it would fall under the interpretive rule that it is for us but not about us. But Ruth is, in fact, a wisdom book and therefore is as directly applicable to our lives as the Psalms are or the Proverbs are. If you want to be a woman of strength or find a woman of strength, look at Ruth. She'll show you how. And this is, it's astonishing. Um, now, last three books of the Old Testament. This is where things get interesting. The last three books of the Hebrew Bible in the wisdom literature are these. Ezra, Nehemiah, and Chronicles. And by the way, Chronicles was originally one book, but in our English Bibles, we split it up into two. It's the same content, we just split it. Ezra and Nehemiah tell the story of the return of the people from exile. Ezra, who's a priest, he leads a group home and they rebuild the temple. Nehemiah leads yet another group home and they rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Now, it's, listen, it's very important that these books come after the prophets. Because the prophets, in the prophets, there are various promises given by God through his covenant lawyers that the Lord would lead his people back to their land. And once they arrive, that a, that a new temple would be erected. A new temple would be built out of the smoking husk of the original and that it would, this is the important part, and that this temple would exceed the glory of Solomon's temple. It would be much greater than Solomon's. So Ezra leads the people home to rebuild the temple. And when it's done, something astonishing happens. In Ezra chapter 3, the building of the temple is complete. And what it says is that the young people 
who had been born in exile, who had never seen Solomon's temple before. The young people, when they saw the new temple, they rejoiced and exulted. And there was loud cheers going up from the congregation. But then it says that the old men who had seen Solomon's temple before it was destroyed and before they were exiled, the old men wept at the sight of the new temple. Why? Because the old men had heard the promises that when they returned, there would be a temple of, that would be built that exceeded the glory of Solomon's temple. And when they saw this temple, they said, that's not it. <laughs> okay, now. After that, we get to Chronicles. And there is so much to unpack in this book. First of all, if you've ever read Chronicles, you know that it begins with like 10 chapters of genealogies. It's very difficult to get through if you're like one of those people who's like, you know, I'm going to read every chapter. And it's very difficult. And, um, and then in the rest of the book, essentially, it recounts, as I said before, the history uh, that we read about in the book of Kings and the prophets. There's a few different emphases, but it's basically the same. Um, we read about the spiraling corruption of the monarchy um, and how the kings grew more wicked by each generation. And they would lead the people into worshiping idols and other gods that they had never known. And then... Here's how the book ends. In our Bibles, this is 2 Chronicles chapter 36, uh, verse 22. These are the last words of the Old Testament according to the Hebrew order. 2 Chronicles 36, verse 22. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled... The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, thus says Cyrus, the king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house, a temple, at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you... Of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. That's how it ends. That, that's the ringing conclusion of the Old Testament, according to the Hebrew ordering. And it's very confusing because it ends with the proclamation of Cyrus. Think about this for a second. It ends with the proclamation of Cyrus for the people to return from exile. But in the two previous books, Ezra and Nehemiah, we already have the story of the people's return from exile, so we're, we're actually going backwards in time to end the story. What's going on here? Well, remember, they're not ordering their books according to genre or chronology or anything like that. They're ordering their books according to covenant. How does God open up and tell the story of his promises and how they are fulfilled. And if, we, if we're going to figure out what's going on here, we, it all comes down to those last four words. Let him go up. Now, 
you've been here for any amount of time, you've heard me talk about this before. It was a few years ago. I can't remember now, but um, but hope, so this will be reviewed to some of you, but hopefully not to all of you. This word, go up. This word in Hebrew occurs many times throughout the Old Testament. And nearly every time it's used, it is in the context of holy war. So pick any battle that the Israelites fought in the Pentateuch or from Joshua and on, and you'll see these words. Like, the enemy is at hand. Which of the tribes will be the first to go up? Um, the, the camp is exposed. Which one of you will be the first to go up? It's always used in this battle kind of context. And so the Old Testament ends with this question hanging in the air. Who will go up? Who will fight for us? The old men wept at the reconstruction of the temple. Who will go up and right this wrong? The whole book of Chronicles is structured this way to communicate a single point. The return from exile has failed. Who will go up and fight for us? Now, remember what I said about the structure of the wisdom literature. We have exposition, then we have illustration. So when Ezra and Nehemiah and Chronicles give us the exposition that the temple has failed, that the return from exile has failed, and the promise to restore the throne of David has failed, and then it ends with, let him go up, and we, we're not given the answer. Who, who will go up? Who? What we would expect is another book after Chronicles to give us the illustration of the one who went up to fight for his people and defend them and restore all that has gone wrong. But it doesn't. That's how the story ends. Now, how is that lingering question going to be answered? Well, let's think about it and try to tie all of these strands together. I mentioned that Chronicles begins with a massive genealogy, 10 chapters in all. And I've mentioned before, um, probably in that same sermon, I mentioned before that, um, that we often misinterpret the genealogies and what they're there for. We tend to think that they're there for record keeping, which would be a really weird thing to do. God is writing a Bible, uh, uh, his own inspired word for his people to unfold the covenant of God and, and how he keeps his promises. And he wants to keep a record of the, get another book. You know, just do, it, do it elsewhere. Why, why would you put genealogies in the Bible to keep records of the people? But here's the thing. Even a cursory reading of any of the genealogies will disabuse us of that particular conclusion because there are gaps all over them. They're not that accurate of genealogies which is, some people can look at that and say, oh, it's very embarrassing. You know, you say the word of God is inerrant and inspired That's because this genealogy doesn't match up with this genealogy. They leave that guy out. This guy leaves that guy. You know, it, it's, that's not what they're there for. Remember that when the Old Testament was originally written, it was written on scrolls. There's no paragraph breaks. 
There was no chapter divisions. There was no verses, nothing like that. It was just words, line after line after line after line. And so the genealogies were put in there as a literary device. You see? They, they were put in there as a literary device. They were included as a signal that the narrative is shifting. Now, I don't have time to get into all that. I would love to, but I don't have time. Um, but, but go through and read it for yourself. Look, look at every time a genealogy occurs in the Old Testament. You will find there is significant redemptive movement on either side of it. They are there to say, hey, pay attention. God is about to move. That's what the genealogies are there for. Now, when you see a genealogy on, a, on the scale of the one that begins Chronicles, it should make your heart start beating fast. What is God going to do? He's about to do something massive in redemptive history. But then we're left dangling at the end and wondering, who will go up? What is the Lord going to do? And if we had our, our Old Testament ordered in this way, all we would have to do is flip the page to the New Testament do you know what the first words would be that we would see? We would see the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. <laughs> oh, isn't that astonishing? Now, it's not an accident that the only other book in the entire Bible besides Chronicles to begin with a genealogy is Matthew. There are four Gospels, and have you ever wondered why they're ordered the way that they are? It's universally agreed that Mark was actually the first one chronologically to be written. Why doesn't Mark come first? It's because the people who arranged our New Testament could see clearly what to us is still draped in fog and mystery, namely that the Gospel of Matthew is the illustration that was lacking from the exposition of Chronicles. And by the way, if genealogies are the signal of God's redemptive movement, we get the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And then do you know who gets the next genealogy in the New Testament? Nobody. There are no more. Which tells us that Jesus Christ is the height of God's redemptive movement. So who will go up and fight for us? The, what we see here is that Jesus Christ is the one who will go up and fight for his people. The old men wept at the temple and the prophetic expectation had failed. Who will go up and restore the temple to the glory that goes beyond Solomon's temple? It's Jesus Christ. Don't you remember that he walked into the temple, he looked around, and he said to his disciples, all of these stones will be toppled, and then I will raise this temple in three days. And everyone's astonished. How can you raise this temple in three days? It took 50 years to build. And then John gives us that little gem which says, but he was referring to the temple of his body. Jesus Christ is 
the temple whose glory exceeds that of Solomon. Jesus Christ is the new temple where we go to render acceptable worship to God. Jesus Christ is the place where heaven and earth meet. Jesus Christ is the place of the presence of God. He is the fulfillment of the temple. And if the old men had seen him, they would not have been weeping. If they had read the revelation of John, which said that in that heavenly city there is no temple because the Lord God is its temple, they would have shouted for joy. And finally, though the return from exile failed, Jesus Christ goes up to the cross, has his body broken, has his blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins so that we may be called citizens of his heavenly kingdom, sons and daughters of God, adopted in love, made co-heirs with Jesus Christ. And in him, we have found our true return home from exile. And it is marvelous in our sight. Amen. And now we come to the table of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a table that he has spread for us in the wilderness, in the midst of our enemies. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that Jesus Christ is our wisdom. So if you want to know what the wisdom of God looks like, it looks like a broken body. It looks like blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins so that God might make sons and daughters out of his enemies. So as you take these elements in your body, remember, you're eating and drinking the wisdom of God. And as recipients of the magnanimity of that wisdom, remember, you are loved more than you ever dared imagine. So, let us pray. <laughs>